Remain standing this morning and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38, verses 24 through 30. Genesis 38, verses 24 through 30. And God's word says this. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them as his and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Please be seated. And we always need the Holy Spirit's help with every text. And we could sure use his help today as we preach, as we listen, as we interact. And so let's bow our heads and ask for God to help us as we look at his word. Thank you, God, for your text. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for all of us, uh, old and young in here. We pray that your, your, your spirit will teach us, help us out, uh, show us what we need to, to see. And, of course, we want this to point uh, to the great mercy that's there at the cross and to Jesus Christ, our Lord, and to a right relationship with you, Lord, through Jesus. And for this we do ask help by your spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. So the women of Christmas, the women of Christmas, who are the women of Christmas? If I was going to preach a sermon series of about seven weeks on the women of Christmas, which I am, beginning now, who are the women of Christmas? And I asked some people, who are those women of Christmas? Uh, who would you say are the women of Christmas? Uh, somebody said, well, Mrs. Santa Claus is starting to get a prominent role. Uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day, they've got her on the back of the sled now. It won't be long until <laughs> she's up there and, and, and Santa's on the back. Um, there's a woman of Christmas, but that's not what I'm talking about. Somebody says, well, it's got to be Mariah Carey. <laughs> she's everywhere at Christmas. At least that song is that uh, we, we can't help but hear in the supermarkets and all that. But we're not talking about women of Christmas uh, in that sense, but biblical. Who are the women of Advent? And, you know, I, I said, well, some people, as they look and, and they, they want to get a good Advent series, I see some people talk about the women of Christmas, and, and how would you stretch that out to four weeks? I could only think of three. Mary, of course. Mary, you got to have Mary. That's, that's numero uno. If you're playing Family Feud, that's, that's, that's what the survey is going to say. 
Um, then Elizabeth, because she's there in these two accounts in Matthew and Luke. And if you want to kind of bring Anna into it, uh, when they took Jesus to the temple to have him um, baptized, or in that case, uh, circumcised, but they took Jesus, there's Anna, the boy. And then you start to read the genealogy that Matthew gave. And we've always uh, taught and understood uh, the Gospels, all of them true, different perspectives on, on truth, like examining a fine, a guy would, or a jeweler would take a diamond and look at it and examine it with that little thing in his eye and, and just look at the beauty of it all the way around. That's your Gospels. Different angles of Jesus and who he is and what he did. They complement each other. Two of them uh, specifically details about the advent. Matthew and Luke do. Um, Matthew, as we look at the Gospels, uh, we say uh, mostly he was writing from a Jewish perspective to Jewish people. Mark uh, uh, was more of a, of a um, writing the words of Peter. We, we strongly believe by internal evidence. It's more of an action gospel. Luke was writing to Gentiles as a Gentile writer himself. John came along afterwards and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, gave us some theological tie-ins. And as we preach through John, uh, which we're doing now, um, we see a little bit of a difference between that and what we would call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But you jump into Matthew and the verses that Mark read today. Um, genealogies, that's also inspired text. Matthew wrote those as God breathed those words out. And there's something about the genealogy in Matthew that's a little different than Luke. We won't, this isn't a sermon on genealogies, but just to, to say you can read them both and, and one goes well, uh, with, with one line, one with the other. But what is surprising as you look at biblical genealogies, in this particular one, there are these four women named. The major genealogies and even the minor ones in the Old Testament and throughout uh, trace the father's line. That's just how they did history in those days, and that's how it went. Uh, the only one, surprisingly, that includes women is a genealogy given in Genesis 4. It's like a, a genealogy of, of ill repute. It's Lamech and, 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 and Lamech's wives and his daughter. Not his wife and his daughters, but his wives and his daughter are mentioned in that one. That's the only other one. So why, who are these women that are included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Holy Scripture for us? Who are they? Now, we would include, uh, most likely, uh, people that were more well-known. Uh, Sarai, Sarah, Abraham's wife. Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, who was a good woman and, and was really uh, had a tough life, if you read about her. Uh, we would include those. These four women are a little different. Uh, somebody wrote a book, and I guess to... 
I think it was a really good book by a really good writer with the title, Bad Girls of the Bible. <laughs> and then they put three of these girls in here, uh, Bad Girls of the Bible. Um, but they had some, some, some ill repute in some cases. All four of these, uh, we can say were Gentiles. You say, well, maybe not Bathsheba, uh, but she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, quite likely a Hittite woman herself. Rahab, we know. Um, and we're going to get to her story. Uh, Tamar here, uh, we know. Outsider, Ruth, Moabitess. It's interesting, and somebody pointed this out. This is just, this is free, but it's so interesting and fascinating. Matthew starts out including all these Gentiles into this line in a book that he, he wrote primarily to the Jewish people, and here are these Gentiles in. Uh, there's no pure bloods. Somebody wants to think racially we're pure, we're best, we're this. We're all, we're all a, good, a good mix of good people and bad people. And we just come down the line from that. But it starts out with, gen, with Gentiles in the genealogy from the start. And it ends with Jesus telling his Jewish disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And we get to see that Jesus is the Jesus for the whole world. So we're going to look at these four women. Now the way the, way the sermon series stacked up, I, I, if I was going to do a seven-weeker, I would have started last week. But that lent itself to Thanksgiving with all the people here and the Thanksgiving. And, and so we're going to take uh, uh, Tamar here. We're going to do uh, uh, Rahab. We're going to have Ruth. And then as we're getting toward Christmas, uh, we bumped Bathsheba to the very end. So we'll have on, on Christmas Eve, it'll be Elizabeth as we anticipate Christmas. We'll talk about Mary on, uh, on Christmas Eve. Actually, uh, the week before that will be Elizabeth. Then we'll have Anna in the temple. What a godly woman, and I can't wait for us to learn a little bit more about her. And then we'll come back and pick up Bathsheba. How does that sound? So today, Tamar. One other note. I'm going to call her, sometimes I'm going to say Tamar. Sometimes I'm going to say Tamar. I'm going to say Tamar because that was ingrained in me from my mom reading scripture, and that's how mom pronounced it, so that's the right way. And then I think in seminary, some of these people, these professors and, and uh, Hebrew and Greek scholars pronounce it the wrong way, Tamar. <laughs> that's a joke. But my mom's way is right. Um, but anyway, so if I say Tamar and Tamar, same person, potato, potato. But uh, uh, with all of that, let, let's look at, at Tamar and her life. Who is she? Included in the line of Jesus Christ. I want to look at them, and as we look at Tamar, here's four things I want us to observe this morning about Tamar this morning. Her hopeless, helpless situation. Tamar's bold plan. Tamar's triumph. And finally, Tamar, Tamar, perpetuates the tribe of Judah. Now, we're not going to go back and read the early part of the chapter. You can do that on your own, or you might be familiar with it. But in a summary, she was a woman with a hopeless, helpless 
situation like so many other women and men in history, even living today. Hopeless, helpless situation, desperate situation, a no-way-out situation. It all starts with a man named Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, Judah was, uh, with his brothers, had just come off of selling Joseph into slavery. The whole uh, scope of, of, of Genesis has started to tell Joseph's story, and all of a sudden it skips to this chapter. People have said, and then it picks up Joseph again, and people have said, why is this chapter in the middle of all of that? One uh, well-known, uh, at least well-known to me, familiar to me, scholar, theologian, commentator, writer, said, this chapter has no use for the common Christian. Basically said, don't even preach it. Um, uh, it's good for the Bible scholar to get some background on the times, but it's not. Um, because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, along comes this story. But you get into Judah's mindset. Judah, along with his brothers, has just sold Joseph. Um, they've dipped the coat in the goat's blood. They've told dad that, that, that his favorite son has obviously been killed. Let him showed him the coat, let him draw the conclusion. They're all living a lie. Everybody's in on the joke, in on the secret, except their dad. And you kind of think of the pressure that that puts on you if you have even half of a conscience. I'm thinking of Edgar Allan Poe's book, The Telltale Heart, where he put the the body of the person under the floorboards, and when the police came and knocked on the door and asking questions, and all of a sudden in his conscience he hears the heart beat, 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 and he can't believe that they don't hear it, and then he thinks they're hearing it and they're just playing with them. It's conscience. And some people speculate that Judah moved out then, made his drastic life change and got out of there, started his own family because of a conscience. That's plausible. I can buy into that. I can, I can believe that. Uh, at any rate, Judah says, I'm out. He sees a woman, doesn't give her name, tells her dad's name. He immediately uh, broke from his family, became friends with Hiram from Adullam, it says. He married the daughter of a Canaanite. There's not much about the marriage except we see a little clue about Judah. He's impulsive. If he wants it, he takes it. Gets it, act. No, no, no restraint on his impulses. We'll see that more in the story. He sees her, takes her as his wife, and the next thing we know, there's three sons born to them. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. His oldest was ready for marriage, and so what did he do? When got this girl named Tamar to be the wife. And then Genesis 38, 7 tells us that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It doesn't say what his wickedness was, but it said he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Does that mean God's bad in some way? (laughs) Do we get mad at God? No, God is God, and if God says this person's wicked in my sight and I'm putting him to death, that's God's business. We can say God's merciful because it doesn't happen more often and, and, and didn't happen to us. 
It's God's prerogative. That's justice. And God put Ur to death. And so here's Tamar, taken from her own environment, given to this man Ur as her husband, and he's dead. He had something in those days, and uh, it's even coded into uh, Deuteronomy law, called the Leveret marriage. In those days, they didn't have uh, great uh, programs to help those who were going to fall through the cracks. They didn't educate um, too many people, including women. Tamar was just in trouble. And a provision in the law was for her then to go into her uh, husband's brother, have a child with that, and that would preserve the line of the brother, and it would even provide her with some social welfare, some security growing up. Now you think of all these women uh, that you see in Scripture weeping, wanting, longing for children. And it was for many reasons, but one of those reasons was uh, who's going to take care of me when I get old. What happened is they prevented, kind of made a joke out of it. And Onan kept this from happening. And God killed him. There's two brothers down. God looking at great wickedness. God saying this is wicked to not look out for Tamar. And I'm thinking of God looking out uh, for um, when, when, when Abraham try, and Sarah tried to go around God's plan and, and there's that uh, servant in, in the house and she had the, the son. And they kicked her out and, and the angel appearing to her, listen, God is not unaware of the people that we are unaware of, the people we walk by, the people that we uh, may see and, and, and rally around for a short time and then get on with our lives. And the Lord is there and the Lord sees. And both of these brothers are gone. Little brothers at home. Dad knows the law, but dad doesn't want, for one, he says, I don't want my other son to die. All of a sudden, he's without kids, uh, if that happens. And so there's a stall tactic. And there's a put-her-on-the-shelf tactic. Tamar's story is this, not wanted, not cared for, no life savings, no life insurance, no quality of life. Essentially, you could say no life, day to day to day, same thing. The child she could have had to raise a purpose in life, denied in those days, she couldn't just say, I'm going to go to college and go find somebody. She was trapped. She was sinned against by the men in her life. Sinned against by the men in her life. And I want you to see her because the Bible presents her. And if you understand her, she's a tragic figure. Nothing to live for. Hopeless. But if you looked in her eyes, they were dead. 
Somebody wrote a song about a woman in a factory trying to raise and feed three little mouths and nothing to live for. And they put these words in her mouth as a mill worker. And she's saying, mill work ain't easy and mill work ain't hard. Mill work, it ain't nothing but an awful boring job. I'm waiting for a daydream to take me through the morning and put me in my coffee break where I can have a sandwich and remember. And it's me and my machine for the rest of the morning, for the rest of the afternoon, for the rest of my life. And she goes on to sing, Yes, but my life has been wasted. I've been the fool to let the manufacturer use my body for a tool. She said, I can ride home in the evening staring at my hands, swearing by my sorrow that a young girl ought to stand a better chance. And there's just a hopelessness. And understand, uh, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, we talk a lot about hope around here. Uh, We talk a lot about heaven. We're marching to Zion. We can, we can interpret, we, we can't interpret every little thing that happens, but we can, we can look at the one who makes it happen, and we know that it's God, and God is good, and we know where we're going. Somebody says, you know, uh, I know how the story ends. I've read it in the book. I, I've read the last. I know what's happening for me. Uh, sometimes we might even forget that the vast, vast mature, majority of people don't have that. We have a godly hope if we're Christians. They have a wish and a hope, uh, maybe for some temporary thing, maybe they'll get lucky. Maybe the brakes will go their way. And Tamar was a woman without hope, sinned against by everyone who should have been looking out for her. So she hits on a bold plan. She's going to get this child. Yeah, she's going to find a way. She found a way. Judah's wife died. Judah mourned for a time. And when the time of mourning was over, it's time for Judah to get on with his life. Maybe he was planning to go grab another wife for himself. We know he was still able to have kids because the story tells us that. Um, How did he see his future? He had two sons dead, (laughs) killed by God for their wickedness. And he would have known, he would have known what was going on with God and his sons. He would have known that. Feared the same thing for his remaining son. He had to get out of town on business, go see how his flocks and herds were doing. Well, can't send his Onan. (laughs) Onan's dead. Can't send Ur. Ur's dead. You got to keep that little son protected, so he's got to go himself. And he's headed out to see his son. And Tamar specifically targeted him. It was told to her that he was headed that way, and she's going to have it out. Took off her widow's clothes, put on a veil. Now, the veil could be a couple of things, and I, I learned something this week. I learned a different line of thought. Didn't learn it as fact, but I learned it as a possibility. I'm going to share that with you. Some people said the veil, specifically, she put those clothes on, dressed up in that way, to snare him. Others said no. 
and I read this this week. Actually, I should read my ESV study Bible a little bit more because it was in those notes that I read it, by the way. Um, talks about the veil itself. It says, having in wait, waited in vain for Judith to fulfill his promise regarding Shelah, Tamar decides to take action. She puts off her widow's garments and covers herself with a veil, possibly, and this, I want you to hear me say possibly too. I'm telling you possibly, possibly, intending first to remind Judah that she is betrothed to Shelah. Here's what happened. The use of the veil just a couple chapters earlier, same writer, Moses, in Genesis. Uh, when Rebekah lifted up her eyes and saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, said to the servant, who's that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. Uh, that use of the veil, same Hebrew word, same thing, was not for nefarious purposes. It was for modesty purposes. It was to remind that she was betrothed. Uh, the ESV note taker that, that, that obviously wants us also to be sympathetic to Tamar um, said this is possibly her first, her first thing to do. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Maybe the seduction was part of the veil plan. But I'm, I'm saying, I, used to, I went into this thinking it was exclusively her reason. Uh, now I'm hearing there's a possibility that wasn't her first reason. At any rate, when Judah, Mr. Impulsive, saw her, saw her there, he assumed she was a lady of the evening or, or a, a, a temple a person that, that did uh, things for money. And that's what he assumed. She's available for a price because of her covered face and also the fact that she was there alone. Contrast now. And you say, what's this doing in here? What's the Judah story doing in between the Joseph story? Uh, is what Tamar did wrong? Would they have known? Uh, they were maybe, they didn't have all the, uh, the, the, the physical relations stuff codified yet. Uh, Mount Sinai hadn't happened. And yet you look at Joseph, when Potiphar's wife seduced him, he said, how can I do this sin against God? They knew what was right. God's law uh, was written down, in the, in the mount, and, and it came down in the tablets and all that. But that's not when God's law began. Right and wrong uh, is in the person of God, and, 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 and right has always been right, and wrong has always been wrong. And I'm not going to say here Tamar was right in what she did. In fact, even at the end, uh, uh, you'll see uh, Judah saying, she's more righteous than me not she's righteous. Think of the passage where we left off in John that we're going to come back to where they brought the woman caught in adultery trying to trap Jesus. Should she be stoned? And he said, let him among you without sin cast the first stone. Uh, those, that, that passage is a lot in common with this one. But Jesus turned to the woman and what did he say? Go and sin no more. Didn't say she was right. We see this hypocrisy. We see Judah with immediate gratification. See Judah different than that brother Joseph uh, who he had sold into slavery. She says, what will you give me? 
He doesn't know it's her. Thinks she's just a woman there. He promises a young goat, I'll send you one. She says, I don't know if I can trust you. Give me your signet, your cord, and your staff. That's the equivalent. That was his driver's license and his social security card. Just give me your, you come back with the goat, I give you your driver's license back. This is the identifier of him. So she kept it. She goes back home as a widow. Doesn't say a word, and three months later, the pregnancy is showing. In the meantime, Judah's sending the goat to get his driver's license back and his ID uh, just to keep this thing on the quiet, and she's nowhere to be found. He goes, oh, well, she's gone. Uh, Whatever. Give me another. Go go, go stand in line at the DMV, but I'll give me another driver's license. I'll I'll do what I need to do, and and, uh, it's all hush-hush. Only my my loyal uh, servant knows, and so it's all on the quiet. All of a sudden, Tamar, three months pregnant. And oh, the scandal. Oh, that wicked woman. Oh. Um, somebody pointed out three generations. Again, this is, just, uh, this is just if you were in a class, you'd write down this down and it would be interesting. And I just think it's interesting. Three generations, all deception, all fooled, and there's a goat involved. (laughs) Um, Jacob fooling Isaac by putting the goat skin on and Isaac thinking that's Esau. The sons fooling Jacob, Judah among them, fooling Jacob with the goat's blood. And now now a goat involved in this deception of, of himself getting tricked and fooled. She's pregnant. And we're going to get to Tamar's triumph. Verse 20. It's where we, almost where we started. It says, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. He asked the men of the place, where is she? Who is here? No, nobody's been here like that. Uh, Can't find her. Men of the place said, uh, uh, no, she's not been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own. We'll be laughed at. See, I sent this young goat, so I tried to keep my end of the bargain. And then about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And all of a sudden, this woman with no hope, and Judah sees a chance. I can get rid of this woman. I can get rid of the kid. Both kids, as it turns out. Um, uh, the problems are off my hands. My third son doesn't have to perform these Levitical right, this, this Levitical marriage, this, this right, um, and I can get rid of her. And immediately he says, burn her. Doesn't say let the child at least be born. Child didn't do anything. Now just burn her, burn her, burn her. Immorality, immoral, burn her. No immorality in my house. We can't stand for that. We do things right around here, he says. Burn her. Get rid of the evidence. Now it will be. uh, uh, So he's wanting to get rid of her. And so, like the people saying, stone her. 
the hypocrisy that is there with the strong over the weak. Do as I say, not as I do. The young man listened to a lot of John MacArthur in those days. And I remember hearing a story that has stayed with me ever since, I guess because I was young and and newly married, and I was trying to live for the Lord. MacArthur gave this illustration one time. He said he knew of men, knew of them, who said they wish, they only wish their wife would go out and cheat on them and get caught so they could divorce their wife and still be right with God and right with the church. And he said, what wickedness. What wickedness. What utter, you hope that, that, that there's a reason and you can still look good in God's eyes, but you can't. Well, I've got biblical grounds, so I hope she does, I hope she does, I hope she... What terribleness. You think about God seeing the heart. God seeing the heart for what it is. And old Judah could be Mr. Poor Judah. Oh, his sons died, his wife died. And then he was being so nice and he took Tamar into his home and look how she repaid his great kindness. And he could come out here looking really, really good, except good for Tamar. She got his driver's license. She had the evidence. Good for her. And she said, I'm going to tell you. She says, uh, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then thankfully, to Judah's credit, he identified them and he said, she's more righteous than I because I did not give her to my son, Shelah. He didn't know her again. There was no no relationship uh, after that. But she was spared her life, and the life of her sons were spared. For him, that encounter was a moment of gratification. For her, it had been an attempt at survival. Again, I'm not saying she was right. Young people, if you're listening, listen to this or start listening to this. It's never right to do wrong to do right. It's never right to do wrong to do right. She was doing wrong to do right. She was like a a fox caught in a trap that had to chew off its leg to get out of it. She was in a desperate situation. We are not justifying what Tamar did. But Like that old pastor that came to our seminary class and said, you're going to go a longer way with people if you learn how to explain it even if you can't excuse it. That's in this case. And a lot of times you can help people. You can say, I, I, I understand why you did that. It was sin. It needs to be repented of. I might have done the same thing uh, too. I can, I can late, but we're sinners. We need to repent of that. It's never right to do wrong to do right. But her reason for the action was survival. And a lot of people out there that we might even be tempted to condemn. They're just 
people that don't know the Lord, they haven't been raised with God's law, they don't understand, and, and, and their conscience, they know things are wrong, and they're doing what they do to survive. And we love them, and we say this is wrong. And Jesus died on the cross for all who repent of their wrongs, and that, that wrong can be forgiven. had a professor in seminary named Duncan Rankin. He said something one time that made me think and think and think, and I'm still thinking about it. He said, God is so holy that he can handle sin sinlessly. He can use sin in the lives of people to accomplish his purpose without being the author of it, without getting his hands dirty. And that's hard for us on our, on our level, and God's level is like there. It's hard for us sometimes to understand, but the fact of the matter is we're gonna, we, we celebrate it 10 chapters later in Genesis 50 where Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And even in this case, this is another one of those cases where uh, it wasn't right, it was an act of desperation. And here comes little Perez in the line of Christ. And God can do that. And maybe some of us look back at our own, uh, start by saying folly, stupidity, and then we'll just go, our own sin. And we have so many regrets and so many things. And yet, you know what? God can take those and does take even those things as, as, as we develop as human beings and, and as sons and daughters of, of God and God takes those things and even those things that we hope people don't remember. And we're sorry when we think God does. God even uses those things for good. <laughs> I said about my old classmate up there in Montana when I met him. I hadn't seen him since I was 17. I said, man, if, if he remembers me, he remembers me as a jerk. <laughs> so I hope he doesn't remember me. Um, God remembers me. And God takes all of those things for his glory. Listen, Tamar perpetuates the tribe of Judah. Verses 27 through 30, there's those twins. Ruth 4, 18 through 22, 10 generations from Perez to King David. Matthew 1, that Mark read. And God is not uh, wiped out or devastated. God works God's loving, good plan in spite of us, even with our sins. One man wrote this, and listen to this. He wrote, Blessed be Tamar. Through her determination to have children of the promise, she scratched and clawed her way into Israel and secured for Judah the honor of fathering both David and the Savior of the world. I'm going to wrap it up. I've got a couple of points. Quote from Martin Luther, one verse, and, and then we're at the, uh, at the table. But listen to this. Application conclusion. God's purpose will be accomplished. God's purpose will be accomplished. Uh, I've never forgotten hearing this baseball player. I think he was the first third baseman to sign a million-dollar contract. So that, that dates him. It's, it's a ways back. Travis Fryman, Pensacola, Florida. Parents get divorced. 
Mom moves to Cantonment, Florida, which is just, it's Pensacola roughly, greater Pensacola. Cantonment, they've got this wonderful baseball program. It's the home of Don Sutton, home of Pittsburgh Pirate Jay Bell. Jay Bell spoke at our church the same night Travis Fryman did and gave his, his uh, testimony. Travis said, I was moved from my friends. I was grieving and hurting over what was going on between my parents that I didn't cause. I was driven to baseball, had some good baseball coaches, one of them was an elder at our PCA church there. Um, he said, I can't explain everything, but God, through all of that pain, all of that sin, whatever was going on there, uh, God used all that for his purpose to drive me into baseball and to show me I was good at it and to make me work hard at it because that was my new family. And he gave me a forum to talk about him and, and spread the gospel. And then he comes back to Pensacola and leads men's ministries and does great things for God. He says, I, I would change things. I wouldn't go through the pain I went through, but I did go through it. And God used that. And that may be your story being written even now. said, I don't have any deep theological words to explain it, but God used those bad circumstances that were out of my control and gave me a platform to glorify him. And this is in a small scale what we see at Calvary. The worst day in the world is when wicked people got together and killed the God who created them. That's the worst day in the world. That's the best day in the world. Did I say best or worst? Both. And you think about that. You think of Tamar and that hard life and God redeeming that. You might see yourself in Tamar. In fact, I hope we all do, hopeless and helpless, trying to come up with our own solutions out of our own situations, being seen by God all along and not being crushed by God in spite of our sin. Tamar stayed in the family, uh, quite likely one of the 70 that went down uh, to survive the famine. Along with little Perez, who would be part of the great begats in the line of Christ. What did she have by way of the gospel? Well, all they had in those days were the stories of promise given to Abraham. They would have heard those. She heard those. I do believe she wouldn't be mentioned in, in such a way if the Lord had not had her believe in that coming Messiah. And boy, you, you uh, make me bet everything I own and have. Is she in heaven worshiping God? I, I, I'm going to take, take that as, as, as the quite likely, the most likely, just looking at her position here in the genealogy. Welcome to the family, Tamar. Finally, here's Montgomery Boyce, James, James M. Boyce, quoting Luther in this passage, and then we're going we're to uh, wrap it up. So listen to this. Boyce said, Luther said that the story of Judah and Tamar was included in Genesis for two purposes. So, boy, me, quoting Boyce, quoting Luther. Uh, uh, first, to rebuke presumption, and second, to challenge despair. It rebukes presumption in that if Judah, who was an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and was instructed as he must have been in the religion of his father Jacob and his ancestors Isaac and Abraham. If Judah, who had so much, sinned so easily in going to Tamar, then any of us can likewise sin, regardless of our background, privileges, or training. We must confess our sinful natures and stay close to God, from whom alone the strength to resist temptation comes. It's one reason this story is in here for us. Second, the story challenges despair because in the midst of this great sin, we nevertheless see the great mercy of God. Luther wrote, The church of God has great need of these examples. For what would become of us? What hope would be left for us if Peter had not denied Christ and all the apostles had not taken offense at him and if Moses, Aaron, and David had not fallen? Therefore, God wanted to console sinners, I would say us sinners, with these examples and to say, if you have fallen, return, for the door of mercy is open to you. You who are conscious of no sin, do not be presumptuous, but both of you should trust in my grace and mercy. Romans 5.20 reminds us that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this incident. Thank you for seeing fit to include this incident. And we thank you for your work in the life of Tamar and your work in the life of Judah and your work in the life of all these people in this line of Christ. But we thank you that Jesus Christ was different, unique, uh, sinless, fully God, fully man. And we thank you for the person and the work of Christ on our behalf. And we thank you that there is forgiveness for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.